started the series, I was drawn back uh, kind of the way God rocked my world 31 years ago when he spoke to me on the side of Seven Highway in Lansing, Kansas. And, and every week I seem to be kind of diving back into that time in my life. And so as I was prepping for this week's message, um, it was no surprise that I found myself uh, kind of mining those old memories uh, for something to start us off with today. And, and it didn't take me long, primarily because of the, the person we're talking about today. Um, uh, the very first time I found myself learning about King David uh, in a living room Bible study, I found that I like really resonated with this dude. Um, have you ever noticed how some people just kind of have that Bible character they resonate with, that person that they like, they can like feel what they feel and know what they know? Um, one of the biggest names in the Bible, Moses, uh, you know, was this guy that everybody knows, like maybe one of the biggest names in the world. And this dude tried really hard to beg off the job, like. I do not want to do this, God. Um, it's weird that the guy that we maybe know the best other than Jesus um, didn't even want the job. And, uh, and uh, my mentor, um, Butch, uh, always said he totally understood Moses, like Moses. And I was like, who understands Moses? And, and then when I read that Moses tried to beg off the job, I got it because um, my mentor never wanted an audience. Like he never wanted um, uh to be in that responsible position, and he always was, like always was. Um, there was a season when uh, when Butch accepted a job in California. It was supposed to come with an apartment, and so they, they had reasons they needed to leave here, but they, they sold most of their stuff, packed up what they had left, went to California, found out the, the apartment wasn't part of the gig um, after all. It was kind of a kind of a bait-and-hook thing, or bait-and-switch thing. And so um, they had nowhere to live when they got out there. And so for it, was, it wasn't the rainy season, and for, so, so for six months they lived in a tent, um, they rented a spot in a little campground and lived in a tent for six months. Um, and, uh, and while they saved up a deposit for an apartment. And what was weird was um, within about a couple of weeks, there was 15 to 20 people every single night. They were coming to their tent after dinner when Butch would teach the Bible to his kids. And so they had like 15 to 20 people coming to the tent to, to hear this Bible study. And by the end of the six months, that was up to like 50 people, sometimes 75 people. And a lot of them weren't even at the campground. They were driving in to come to this Bible study while Butch would, uh, would teach everybody. Um, and God was, uh, they were all worshiping and praying and baptizing people in the lake. And God was doing all kinds of cool things, and it made Butch sick. Like, I mean, he loved what God was doing, but he would much have rather somebody else be at the center of it. He hated being at the center of anything. So when I first read Moses kind of trying to talk God out of using him, um, I totally got it. This is why Butch resonated with Moses. Some people just get Peter, like impulsive, brash, always seems to say the wrong thing, hot-headed at times. Some people get that. They're like, oh, I totally get Peter. Um, some people resonate with Elijah. Avoid those people. They're dangerous. <laughs> kidding. Um, not safe. Uh, anyway, some people get Esther. They feel that I'm called for such a time as this. They feel that weight and that pressure of knowing that God put me in this position for a reason. Um, some people like Paul and his logical linear thinking, his, his kind of rational progression of his faith and how clearly he could articulate it. Um, some doubt with Thomas or they strip away all theology and focus on love like John. For me, it's always been David, um, this weird blend of kind of manly warrior and poetic crybaby, I've always gotten that. Like, I've always uh, understood this guy, um, this guy who passionately loved his God, but also makes some of the stupidest human errors um, you can make. Um, this guy who has all the ambition in the world, but was careful uh, to not get ahead of God and to wait patiently for God to advance him rather than advance himself. So from day one, I felt like I understood David. David was kind of my man. 
And then a couple years ago, actually just before we moved to this building, we did this long kind of post-Easter um, series on the Psalms of David, the songs that he wrote. We looked at him as an artist and a, and a, and a songwriter. Um, it was maybe my favorite study we've done um, so far together. Uh, and we actually didn't get to finish it because we didn't want to be in the middle of a study when we moved to this church. So we kind of started fresh. So there may be a day we go back and redo that one and, and actually finish it. But, but the thing that was most interesting to me in that series was the way David changed from his earlier um, self, uh, you know, kind of shepherding, making art under the, the summer heat and the night uh, stars. And then later the kind of refugee David who was still under the sun and stars but now was angry. Um, and confused and feeling cheated and kind of pouring all that into his art. And then later, he's the kind of triumphant David who was vindicated and elevated, and now he's writing big corporate worship songs that you can only really write in a time of peace when everybody can gather together. And and so you really got to see the progression of this guy's personality and and who he is in his art. You got to see his art changed. Um, His art reflected what was happening in his life. In fact, one of the comparisons we made um, was how David, early in his life, um, when he was experiencing injustice, and, and he knows in his heart that, that he didn't do anything wrong, um, he writes this. He says, Put me on trial, Lord, and cross-examine me. Test my motives in my heart, for I always am aware of your unfailing love, and I've lived according to your truth. Can you hear that kind of the arrogance of youth there? Like, you can like, try me, God, I'm perfect. Um, and after he lived through a few things, he actually writes this, these words. This is the same David. Don't put me on trial. <laughs> like, you can see the change there. The exact same words, only they've changed. For no one is innocent before you. I love that the growth and experience um, of David, the Bible lets us see. They let us see this guy grow up in his art. Um, and I always wonder if David ever looked back at like his early work kind of some of his early stuff, and got embarrassed. Like, I can't believe I wrote that. Like, I was so cocky back then. Um, I always wonder, because I'm that type of person. I'm the type of person who definitely gets embarrassed when I look back at things. I don't know if anybody else feels that. Um, for years, Esther tried me to, to get me to show videos of me doing some of the crazy stuff we used to do in children's church. There was once I played Richard Simmons in a video. Um, it was disastrous. We were doing this series where... Um, it was kind of an exercise theme. And so you guys remember Hans and Franz, the big guys, you know. So we thought it'd be funny if Hans and Franz did a workout video that we were in. And so I'm Richard Simmons in the video, and I'm Hans and Franz on the stage. And, and I mean, I've got the short shorts. I've got leg warmers. I mean, I went all Richard Simmons. And uh, the, most, the worst part of the whole thing is not a single kid knew who Richard Simmons was. And so they're going, why is Pastor Chris wearing that? I don't like this at all. Like, <laughs> totally backfired. But Esther's been trying to get me to show that video to people for years, and, and I couldn't do it. And I got embarrassed because we were at, at Monday night uh, uh, Bible study one night, and Brett, and Brett was like, oh, you guys want to see something great. Like, pull up YouTube. We sat there and watched videos of him dancing in high school. And he just... <laughs> Unabashed, like, hey, that's my signature move. Don't steal that. Like, it was awesome. I was like, oh, I can't do that. Um, <laughs> but this week, as I was replaying once again my life 31 years ago, I remember this time, probably around 20 years ago or so, when I fumbled across the notes um, from this really short little sermonette that I'd given at a canoe trip camp out when our small group um, went uh, canoeing one time when Esther and I were dating. And, uh, uh, it was maybe the first like sermon I preached, uh, and I 
I, uh, I knew nothing about the Bible at the time, um, but every little thing that I did learn, I shared with somebody. Like, I, I love to talk about what I was learning. Um, the very first passage that I memorized ever, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, I went back to school in Topeka one day, and there was this girl who was looking kind of depressed, and I asked her if everything was okay, and, and she started to kind of share some of the stuff going on in her life, so I kind of started to share what Jesus was doing in my life, and she started asking me questions, and she asked me three questions, and you could answer them all from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and if she had asked me a fourth, I would have been stumped. That was all the things I knew. I, didn't, I knew no more things other than that, but I was able to share what I did know um, with her. But, uh, but so after a couple months of kind of reading my Bible every day and taking notes and asking questions and taking notes and listening to preachers on the radio and taking more notes, I asked if I could share um, some of what God was teaching me uh, at this camp out and, and Butch encouraged me to do so. And so uh, I basically taught everything I knew <laughs> and, uh, and I was super excited and passionate. And everyone was really encouraging and supportive. And then like 10 years later, um, I found those sermon notes. Uh, I found them, and I, uh, I was kind of reading through them, and I realized how absolutely none of the stuff that I talked about that day was nearly as revolutionary to anybody else as it was to me at the time. Like, and so I was. Uh, uh, most of the stuff I taught was the stuff that if you've been a Christian for like ten minutes, you've already heard it like a thousand times. But to me, it was all brand new, and so I was teaching it like it was brand new. Uh, and I remember how animated and charitable everyone was. Um, uh, when I gave it, and so now 10 years later at this point, I'm a Bible college graduate, I've gone on to read and study so much more, um, and honestly at this point I was a little arrogant and legalistic, and, and I usually felt like I was the smartest person in the room, and, and so this 20-year-old Chris is looking back at 19-year-old newbie, realizing that everyone at the campfire was, was just being nice, they were kind of patronizing me, and, uh, and I got um really embarrassed about it. Like I got this weird feeling like, oh, God, I can't believe I thought I was so cool back then. Um, uh, so and 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 as I sat there, you know, reading these notes, basically like all by myself, blushing with humiliation, um, squirming in, in discomfort, God's voice spoke to me like clear as a bell, um, spoke right to my heart. And he said, I miss that, Chris, like. And, and that was the only impressions that made words in my mind, but it came colored with all these like emotional memories of how excited I was to learn everything new um, and how voraciously I studied the Bible just to learn something new and, and, and how simple and pure my faith was and my love for God. And, and suddenly it was like 19-year-old me was standing there looking at 29-year-old me who was so much smarter and so much dumber at the same time. Um, who loved winning debates and arguing over theology and, um, and who mostly used the Bible as a weapon rather than the way the younger me did it, using it like air. Um, and I realized, you know, however embarrassed, embarrassing that 19-year-old me was, I missed him. I missed him too. Um, and, uh, but I still can't handle old videos of me looking stupid. <laughs> um, but I believe David goes through something similar uh, in, in today's passage, and I'm, I'm excited to unpack it. Um, we've been tracking through the covenants of the Old Testament this Lent season from the Adamic covenant. We briefly touched on the Noahic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. And last week we unpacked the Mosaic covenant and how God sets his people free and then offers them a conditional um, covenant whereby if they obey his commands and, and statutes, he will be their God and he'll dump all these crazy blessings on them and the entire contract hangs on this giant tiny word if 
if. And we talked about how the rest of the Old Testament is basically unpacking how Israel repeatedly failed to keep that if. Failed to keep their end of the covenant. They were, they were not faithful to keep God's covenants or statutes. And by the time Jesus steps into history, it had become incredibly clear um, to almost everyone that, that they would not keep the covenant and could not keep the covenant. So Jesus comes to fulfill the if. And, uh, and the covenant um, uh, is, is fulfilled finally in him. And then he turns to us and offers us all the blessings of the if. Um, all the blessings, and he takes the curses upon himself. And he says, here, I'll take your punishment so you can have the blessing. And suddenly the gospel, this good news that Jesus has been talking about for three years, makes sense. Um, Because to the people who had lost um, all hope of ever being found, um, that trade that was offered was indeed good news. Well, this morning we dive into um, the last of the really key historical covenants of the Old Testament. And it turns out to be um, the very reason that we really have an Old Testament. We talked last week about how the Jews, um, whose entire identity and understanding of, of the world fell apart. They were supposed to have a land. They were supposed to be God's special people. And now they've been taken into captivity. And everything they thought was supposed to be was no longer. Um, and, and so their entire identity is shaken in this moment. And, uh, and, and it was this covenant that we're talking about today, this covenant with David, that made them look into the future and say, maybe God's not done with me. Maybe God has more um, for us. God is faithful even when we're not. Um, because looking backwards at the Mosaic covenant, you can't get by that if. And you can see every reason everything has fallen apart around you. But when you look at the Davidic covenant, everything changes. We'll be reading from 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you follow along in your own Bible. Um, but we've got to do a little tiny bit of background. David had had a blessed life, um, just a golden life. Everything he touched turned to gold, was blessed. He, uh, he was anointed king as a teenager. He killed a giant and got fame. Um, he was a gifted musician and got a position out of it. Um, in the king's house, he could do no wrong. Everything he did um, went perfectly. And then because the king got jealous, in an instant, he became a refugee. Everything that had been blessed fell apart in a moment. Um, he, he constantly ran for his life. He lived in the wild. He was even forced to live with Israel's enemies for a while. Um, his life was awful. And it went on for years, like seven years. He lives in the wild, running for his life as a refugee and an exile. Um, and then Saul dies. The king dies. And David's tribe, his little group, asks him to be their king. And so David accepts while Saul's son rules the rest of Israel. And that goes on for like seven and a half years. He's just a small local leader. A lot of us think that when Saul died, David immediately became king. He did not. Um, uh, Saul's son, Isbosheth becomes king, and, and David rules just Judah for a little while. Um, and then finally, the rest of Israel comes to David and says, hey, why don't you rule over all of us and be king? Um, and so this anointing that he received as a, as a teenager finally comes to pass, and he is the king. And David immediately goes to work. Um, they conquer this great city called Jebus, and they rename it Jerusalem, and they make it the capital of Israel. Um, he defeats the Philistines and everybody else that had any beef with Israel at the time. And so for the first time in like forever, David is not constantly at war. For the first time ever, he's got some rest. David decides um, that the capital city of God's people should have God's presence. And so he decides to bring the, the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Um, it had been uh, at a guy's house. And so 
Uh, took a couple tries, but he finally brings the Ark of the Covenant and the tent that Moses had made in the wilderness, and he brings it and sets it up in Israel. And so now the, 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 the tabernacle is in Jerusalem. Um, David's house is in Jerusalem. The capital city is in Jerusalem. Um, and that brings us to today's passage. It says, When King David was settled in the palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said, I'm living in a beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out there in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, go ahead and do whatever you have in your mind, for the Lord is with you. And that same night, the Lord uh, said to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I have never lived in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day. I've always moved from place to place, uh, I'm sorry, from one place to another with a tent and the tabernacle as my dwelling. Uh, Yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I've never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds of of my people Israel. Uh, I've never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? Go now and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord uh, of heaven's armies has declared. I, uh, I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of the people of Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name famous um, as anyone who has ever lived on the earth, and I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place um, where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they have done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people in Israel. Um, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house of you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with a rod like any father would, but my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul when I removed it from your sight. Your house will be, uh, and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secured forever. So Nathan went back to David and told him everything the Lord had said in this vision. This is the Davidic covenant. Um, and to truly understand its import to a Jewish reader, um, you have to imagine reading this passage when you are in captivity. Um, trying to figure out whether or not God has abandoned his people forever. Um, You don't understand what happened. You don't understand why you're there. It didn't feel to you like this was possible. Um, The Mosaic Covenant explained how you got in this predicament, you know, where you went wrong, uh, but there's not much comfort there. Uh, Just telling someone why they went wrong doesn't help much um, because you keep tripping over that if. But, But when you read... God telling David that he will have a throne forever, that God will always be faithful and bring you back. And you mix that with so much of what the prophets wrote about, um, about uh, God's faithfulness, which Esther is going to actually unpack for us next week. So you don't want to miss that. Um, she's going to crush it. Um, <laughs> but when you know for a fact that you are where you are because you have failed to keep your part of a covenant, but here in, in 2 Samuel 7... Um, you have this unconditional covenant that God will always be faithful to David's heir forever. You suddenly have hope again. 
And so that's why the Jews clung to this so tightly. And as far as this covenant goes, historically, um, this covenant absolutely shapes the entirety of the New Testament. The New Testament actually opens with these words. Um, This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, the descendant of David and of Abraham. Like immediately upon writing the New Testament, they knew that David has to fulfill these two covenants. And he does. Matthew goes on to track Jesus's lineage through his stepdad, Joseph, because that's the line any like legal claim to the throne would need to come from. And then Luke tracks um, Jesus's lineage through Mary uh, to make sure that Jesus had a blood claim to that same throne. And they both go back to David. Um, People on the streets uh, of, of places where Jesus went, when they saw Jesus doing the things he was doing and saying the things he was saying, Um, They started calling him the son of David um, because of this passage. Um, It wasn't just that everybody happened to know where everybody came from. It wasn't like everybody that bumped into him was like, you look like David. (laughs) It wasn't the thing. They just knew this, that this character, whoever was going to be the son of David, would do these things. And so this is a huge position um, in the Jewish narrative. The very first Christian sermon ever, Peter makes it clear that Jesus um, is the descendant of David. Um, and that was evidence that he was the Messiah. In Acts 13, years later, Paul's still doing the same thing. He's tracking Jesus back to David. Um, there's no way to overstate the importance of this morning's passage to the gospel narrative. Everything hinges on this moment. In fact, one of the key elements of who Jesus is, which had previously kind of gone hidden, comes from this passage. It says, um, for when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, uh, your own offspring, and he will... And I will make his kingdom strong. He will be the one to build a house, a temple in my name. And I will serve his royal throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When Jesus comes declaring himself to be the son of God, it it absolutely incenses the Jewish leaders. Uh, But right here in, in one of their favorite verses, one of the Jewish leaders' favorite verses, it's clear that he couldn't have been otherwise. Um, that the, that the son of David, when he came, would be called the son of God. Um, so we talked a couple of weeks ago about how the, the prophecies of the Old Testament are kind of like a snail mail address where each element kind of hones it in until you get to the person you're looking for. Um, and we learned that, that someone would come to crush the, the, the head of the serpent and he'd be the seed of the woman. Um, and though that takes on more weight when we learn that Jesus is the seed of only a woman, um, let's just say that it just means that the Savior has to be human, not an angel, be the seed of a woman. Um, we, uh, and then we learn that he's, he's Abraham's descendant, which shrinks that number down a lot, uh, but still several million. And then we learn that he's, that he's a descendant of David, which shrinks that number even more of who could possibly fulfill this role. Um, and, then, and then God says, I'll be his father and he'll be my son. And that, that brings it down to only one person. This passage is a key element to the gospel story. Uh, every bit as key as John 3.16. Like this, this passage is what everything hinges on. Um, Jesus could not be declared the Messiah of the Old Testament, the Savior of the world, if he did not fulfill this passage. It all rides on this. Um, But there's a lot of other great stuff to pull from this passage, other than just the the importance of it to the gospel narrative. Um, And uh, and before we settle into kind of the main point that I think God wants to say to us this morning, um, you know, last week I told you, I'm going to give you a little quick mini sermon. Sometimes I just do it and then I go, but that has nothing to do with our message. Today I got five of them. I got five things that um, I could have preached on. We could unpack this passage forever. So these are like five mini sermons for today. If you're a note taker, jot them down and, uh, and you can kind of unpack them in your own time. Meryl, what's happening, brother? Good to see you. 
<laughs> um, I didn't see you come in. Hi, O'Fan. <laughs> They're like, what's happening? Um, ADD is awesome. Um, so here are your five mini sermons for today. If you're a note taker, you can jot these down. Number one, um, this is probably the greatest moment in David's life. Um, he wrote songs about this moment. Other psalmists wrote songs about this moment. All of Israel reshaped its existence around this moment. And David started it. David was the one who kicked this off. Um, this wasn't God dropping into David's life with a blessing the way God dropped into Abraham's life. Um, David is seeking God at the beginning of this passage. He wants to do something for God. This, this gigantic thing that David does in God's life and legacy was initiated by David leaning in. Um, there, are, there are times when we move in response to what God is doing. Um, God speaks into your life as, as he did mine 31 years ago, and you just try to keep up with what he's doing. But there are other times where he waits for you to get the ball rolling. There are times when, when you need to do something. Um, some, sometimes you need to, to break the inertia um, and, and seek after God. Even if it's dry, even if nothing's happening, we, we seek after God and, and sometimes he responds to us. Read your Bible, pray, get up and go to church, join a small group, serve somewhere, um, ask someone to coffee and ask them what God is doing in their life. Do something. Sometimes um, that's all God is waiting for, is for you to step out uh, and move, and, and he meets you there in some of the biggest moments. David started this by going, hey, what if I built a house for God? And, and God changes directions on him. Number, number two, um, don't mix up the story. You don't really do anything for God. Um, David thinks he's going to do this great thing for God. He basically gets a rebuke for it. Um, God doesn't need a temple. Um, David thinks he's, he's like doing something amazing for God, but God's like, I don't even need a temple. Um, he doesn't, and, and it's the same with us. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need you, um, to, to tell other people about Jesus. He doesn't need you to be nice. The whole gospel narrative doesn't fall apart if you don't do your part. God invites us to serve and give and live right because it's a blessing to us. It is an honor to be invited. The whole thing doesn't fall apart if you, do, if you don't do your thing. Um, David learns that in this passage. He thinks he's doing something for God. And he finds out God's doing something for him. Um, we might think that we're building him a proverbial temple, but in truth, um, we are crazy and blessed even if he invites us to join him in his mission. Um, uh, and this actually gets kind of dangerously close to our main point for the morning, but it also works as a mini-series or mini-sermon. Uh, number three, <laughs> as you build your house, make sure you build God's house. Um, this whole thing happens because David realizes that he's experiencing all these blessings and it only seems natural to do something amazing for God too. Um, th- this seems to contradict what I said in my last little mini-series two seconds ago, but, um, but God is not at all against us enjoying the blessings he gives us. Um, he wants us to enjoy the blessings he gives us. Um, it's a little weird to say that in Lent, but, um, but he blesses us so we can enjoy those blessings. The only time God gets upset is when, you know, our blessings become a cul-de-sac instead of an intersection. He doesn't like things to get stopped up there. We're blessed to be a blessing. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. When we hoard our blessings, um, it changes things. David is being blessed, and it only makes sense to him to go, man, I want to do something awesome with this. Uh, I want to do something great with this. Um, when, when we take our blessings, and, and the first thing that hits our head is, how can I use some of this to be a blessing to the kingdom of God, to advance the kingdom of God? It opens the doors um, of God pouring more blessings into our, into our life. Um, David doesn't begrudge the fact that, that he was a lowly shepherd boy who's now living in a palace. He seems to enjoy his palace. He seems thrilled about his palace. Um, but he also knows, I want to do something good for God too. Number four, just because you are not the one doesn't mean you aren't vital. 
Um, David wants to build a temple for God, and God tells him no. Um, David is not the one. Uh, but without reading it to us, because we don't have time today, David spends the rest of his life compiling resources for this temple. The temple does not happen if David doesn't basically start working on it. He, he lays out the blueprints. He sets up all the material. Um, he does everything. Uh, David turns out to be absolutely essential um, to this work. And, uh, and so, um, so just because you're not the one doesn't mean you're not important. So whether it is at work, at, at home, here at church, whatever, never hesitate um, from giving your all just because you're not in charge. Um, it's, it's, uh, uh, you still have a role to play. And I think the most important people in the world are the people who work their butts off and never get seen. Moms. I mean, that's a, if this was Mother's Day, I'd, you could preach that as a Mother's Day sermon. Um, never get any notoriety and society falls apart without them. Um, uh, okay, number five, you have to create margins for great things to happen. Um, hi, my name is Chris, and I'm a hypocrite. Um, I'm terrible at this, but I have to preach it anyway. So please don't think this is coming from my life. This is coming from the scripture. Uh, the passage starts with this. When King David was settled into his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, these things happened. Um, this gigantic moment in David's life didn't come when he was on the exile, on the run. It didn't come when he was fighting Philistines. It didn't come when he was setting up his government and the worship structure in Israel, David experiences this life-changing moment when he had rest, when he took a minute, um, and, uh, and, and God waited until he had some space. Um, I believe we miss out on a lot because we're over busy. I think we miss out on a lot because we don't uh, have margins in our, in our schedule. We cram our prayers in while we're driving and trying not to yell at other drivers. Um, we read our Bibles when we're sitting and waiting for our kids to, to finish practice when we have no time to meditate or hear what God might have to say to us. We, we try to find God's presence at the end of the day when we're already exhausted and fighting sleep. Um, we need to create space for God to speak into our lives. Um, but a quick caveat, and this is probably for my own conscience more than you, but um, there are seasons in life that are just busy and you can't get away from it. So I don't, I'm not saying this to heap guilt on people. Um, moms, don't feel guilty if you're reading your Bible while your kids are at practice. There are some seasons that are just busy and that is what it is. I get that. So go ahead and pray while you're driving, you know, uh, because uh, it's better than not praying. But I, I do recommend we all take an inventory of our time. Is there space we could create um, in our schedule where, where we could, we could uh, listen to God and see if he doesn't have something to say to us? Uh, it's not until David creates space that God speaks this incredible moment into his life. Um, so we have to create some margins. Okay. Those are our five mini sermons. Um, you can unpack those on your own time, talk about them with a friend, whatever. Uh, but, um, but for this morning, what I'd really like to, to lean into is the fact that David asks to do a good thing and God says no. We read um, in other parts of the scripture that it was because David had been a man of war and that, that means he wasn't suited to be uh, a temple builder. But none of that is in this passage. So in this moment, this real moment that David really lived through, um, this conversation with Nathan, David has just told no. Um, and what's worse is that God almost rebukes him um, a little bit about wanting to build a temple. Look at how, uh, how it happens. Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I've never lived in a house from the day I brought Israel out of Egypt to this very day. I have always moved from one place to another with a tent, and the tabernacle was my dwelling. 
Yet, uh, no matter where I've gone with the Israelites, I've never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, uh, the shepherds of the people of Israel. Um, I've never said to them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? Husbands, this is just for you wives. Put your fingers in your ears. <laughs> you ever said one of those things to your wife, and then she repeats it back to you, and it sounds totally different when she repeats it back to you? And you're like, well, yeah, when you say it like that. Like, you ever had that moment? Yeah. Um, I think that's what happens to David here. Um, I think he, he's a little shocked. Um, I mean, clearly his heart is to honor God. He wants to do it like he knows he's living in a temple. He wants to do this amazing thing for God. Um, he doesn't want to be uh, in a palace with people bowing and, and scraping before him and making a big deal about who he is um, when God is the one they should be giving their attention to. Um, he wants a structure that inspires awe because um, that's the appropriate emotion when you're when you're encountering God. So for God to come back with, oh, so you think you're worthy to build me a temple. I think David had to be like, well, no, not when you say it like that. Like, um, I think it had to be like a little bit of a, a turnaround on David. But uh, uh, the important thing that I don't want us to miss here is that David, um, his intentions are good. He wants to do a good thing. And the completely, uh, the, the bummer is that the good he wants to do is on a completely different track from God. So David wants to do a good thing and still somehow misses God. Here's what I mean by that. David wants to do this good thing. He wants to honor God and create a place where people can come and experience the power and the presence of God. A place where the, 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 the country could be united and, and it be a pilgrimage destination people would come to. David is, is worried that, that he himself is being honored too highly and that God is not being honored enough. And he, and he wants to do something about that. And that is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But you know what David is not thinking about? He's not thinking about what God is thinking about. And that's dangerous. Did you know you can be 100% focused on a good thing and still miss God? Or at least miss what God is doing in that moment? David goes to God ready to do this good thing, and, and he was no doubt expecting God to pat him on the back and tell him, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's awesome that you want to honor me and, and bless me. But instead, God goes, boy, are you off base. You could not be more off in this moment. I couldn't care less about a temple right now. That is not what I'm doing. I'm clear over here doing this other thing. I think we can be guilty of this all the time. In fact, I think there's two things that, that really hurt the church's reputation and culture. One is obvious. It's our wickedness. Every scandal, every affair, every embezzlement, every time we, we preach to the world, then commit a high-profile sin, it really hurts our testimony. We all know this. But the second thing uh, is, is the good we try to do when that's not necessarily what God is doing. Sometimes we, we focus on a good thing and we miss God. When we try to preach as someone who needs a meal. Don't get me wrong, preaching is a good thing. And ultimately the condition of their soul is more important than, than the condition of their stomach. But, uh, but a good thing can go wrong. A good thing in the wrong time is not a good thing. James puts it this way. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you bless them saying, uh, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, and eat well. But you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? How many know it's good to bless people? It's good, it's good to give a blessing. It's good to speak life into people. That's a good thing. It's apparently not a good thing in that moment. God's got something else planned. Your good thing actually makes the situation worse. 
If you do nothing about it and you bless somebody, bless you in the name of Jesus, that becomes a bad thing. I can't imagine the amount of damage we've done in the name of holiness. We want people to refrain from sin and do righteousness, and that's a good thing. It's a really good thing. But how many of you know the best way to attain holiness and do righteousness is to invite the Holy Spirit into our lives and allow Him to convict us and empower us to change over time? But this drives us nuts because it feels like we're just allowing sin or we're suppressing the truth. And, and I'm not suggesting that at all. I would, I'd, I'd never say you know, to, to take something that the Bible calls sin and say it's not sin. That's not what I'm saying. But we do need to, to love the sinner, even right in the midst of their sin, because that's what God does for us. None of us are here if that's not the case. So sometimes we want to do a good thing, like tell somebody to repent. That's a good thing. But in the wrong moment, it's a bad thing. It's totally possible to go off about sin and demand holiness, which is, which is good, and still miss what God is doing in that moment. We do this with our kids all the time. In fact, this may be the easiest way to do it. We can work so hard to, to make them behave that we fail to introduce them to the one that can make them want to behave. I think we do it with our, with our theology all the time. We cling so tightly to doctrinal correctness, and, I, and believe me, this is a good thing, and I think we need to fight to do it all the time. But we do it to the extent that we divide the church and exclude people who love Jesus because they don't believe exactly the way we do. And I think God can come to us at times the same way he came to David and said, who, who are you to make that call? Oh, you're the one to decide which theology is perfect. It's scary, but I think we can go just as wrong with good things as we can with sin. And here's the deal. I, I don't draw that out just to scare us and show us one more way we can get it wrong. That's not what I'm doing here. Like we need one more way to fail, right? No, the reason I point this out in this story is because David was thinking too small. He was thinking too small. When David asked permission to, to build a house for God, and God, what God really says is, dude, you are thinking too short-sighted. You're thinking way too small. David is thinking about building a building, and God is thinking about building a legacy. God is like, you're... Your vision's not big enough. And God does throw in, yeah, the building's going to happen, and, and, but I'm focused on something much bigger right now. God is like, holy cow, you're in a relationship with a God of the universe. Dream bigger. Dream bigger. And what I love the most, and why I say I'm not just trying to make us feel guilty about doing right in the wrong way, is, is because of... David's response when he realizes how far off base he is. God has just told him no to his dream. God has just said, I know what you want to do, not going to happen. And this is what David says. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and prayed, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And now, sovereign Lord, in addition to everything else you speak of giving, me a, giving your servant a lasting dynasty? You deal with everyone this way, O Sovereign Lord? What more can I say to you? You know what your servant is really like, Sovereign Lord. Because of your promise and according to your will, you have done all these great things and have made them known to your servant. 
How great are you, O sovereign Lord? There is no one like you. We've never ever heard of any uh, heard of another God like you. Can you hear the depression and sadness in David's voice as God tells him no? No. He's thrilled. God is like, no, you're thinking too small. And David is like, whoa. He sits down in this like, oh my God, you are amazing. I, I never dreamed. I never dreamed that you would want to do something like this. When David gets a glimpse of what God is doing and how small and insignificant his, David's plans look in comparison, he's ready to drop his plans in a second. And he's swallowed up in gratitude. God's plans are, are, are not in contrast to David's plans. They're just so much bigger. It's like God said, you know, to, to our over, overly political church in America, hey, what if we stopped worrying about passing laws to enforce morality and instead we tried to change hearts to make people want to be moral? And you're like, whew, that's way bigger than I was thinking. I'm, I got this one law in mind and God's like, I want to see hearts. I want to see revival. Stop trying to pass a law and pass a revival. And we're like, whew, I was thinking too small. Yes, God, your plan's better. Let's do that one. Let's do that one. We're like David. We're like, I, wow, yeah, I want to do your plan. I honestly think if we could get a hold of God's mission and, and God's real heart for our church and our, our town and our city and our nation and our world, we'd likely qu- quietly drop our plans and hope that no one saw them. Like when you draw a picture and then like a real artist shows you theirs and you're like, I don't want to show mine. <laughs> yeah, like God, I, your plan is, I'm sorry I came up with a plan. Your plan is so much better. I wrestle with this all the time because I would love if, if more people came to Open Table. I like people. I really like people. I like getting to know new people. And there are fail-proof ways to, to grow a church and draw people. And believe me, like more people coming to a church is a good thing. It's always a good thing. But I also think if we brought our plan to God and said, this is our plan, God would say, you're thinking too small. I'm thinking legacy. I'm thinking, I'm thinking big. Your plan is too small. So I'm not giving some dire warning about how we can miss God if we aren't careful. I, I think the reason we need to try to stay close to God's heart and do our best to join His mission rather than just making a mission of our own is because God's plan is always better. We can have plans to do really good stuff and, and I still think God wants us to dream bigger. I think if we could do that, We'd be like David. We'd forget our plans in a second. God, I want to be part of your plan. I want to be part of legacy. I want to be part of something that that's, that's outlives me by generations. How do we respond to this? 20 or so years ago when I was reading my first sermon notes from 31 years ago and getting embarrassed about it, I was doing a lot of good things at the time. I studied my Bible all the time. I was leading small groups. I was a children's pastor. I was teaching at a Bible college and leading worship. I was doing a million good things. And I sat there on my couch in my living room listening to God say, I miss the old you. I miss the way you used to be. The you that was just happy to be with me. That you that felt unworthy but, tr- but transitioned that into gratitude and joyfulness. And you had fewer plans and more dreams. In this morning's story, David was, 
was dependent on Nathan the prophet. This actually proves to be a little bit of a frustrating mechanism because Nathan first says yes and then has to come back and say, actually, I got that wrong. Change of plans. So embarrassing. But in Jeremiah, God said when the Messiah comes, he's going he's gonna to change the game and, and you won't need the prophet to do that. I'm going to put my words in your heart. The Holy Spirit will be within you to lead you and guide you. Every time I study the book of Acts, I'm shocked by how little the church plans and how much the Holy Spirit leads. Every new turn is, is unexpected to everyone but God. Every time God does a new thing, the church is trying to keep up. Like, ooh, we didn't see this coming. And they find out God was already there doing a work. I believe we need to learn to follow. I used to have people ask me all the time when we first started the church, what are you going to do if this happens? What's your plan if that happens? What if this kind of person comes to the church? And my answer was always, I think we'd pray. Like, I don't have any prefab answers. Hopefully we would seek God and pray, you know, it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit that we do this. We've never gone much deeper than that. We talked last week about how in the great mystery stories, you have all these clues that don't mean much until you know who done it. And as soon as you know who done it, all the clues suddenly make sense. This prophecy is one of those. It says, I will rise up, raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He will be the one to build a house, a temple for my name. And I will secure his royal throne forever. David's son Solomon built the temple to God. And when he dedicated it, the presence of God came down and filled the temple. And it was easy for a minute to think that maybe Solomon was the fulfillment of this, this Davidic covenant. But there was, there was a problem that at the time didn't actually look like a problem. It said the trumpeters and the singers performed together in unison and, and to praise and give thanks to the Lord Accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and other instruments, they raise their voices and praise the Lord with these words, He is good, His faithful love endures forever. And at that moment, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of God. We usually read this like it's an awesome thing, that God's presence came down so heavy that nobody could stay in His presence. Awesome. Except God's desire from the very beginning was to be able to be with his people ever since the garden. He set up, when you read through the Torah, he went through so much, not because he was a, a, a harsh, rule-giving God, because he was trying to create a way that he could live among his people. If you will do these things and, and, and live this holy way, I can be in your, in, your, in your camp with you. I can be in there with you. And they build this first temple and God comes in and the people can't be there. They have to leave. One of the things that sets Moses apart from anybody else was God said, I, I, I meet with Moses face to face. To the point that other people had to make Moses put on a veil. In a, in a moment very similar to this, this, this Solomon's temple, in this small attic room, a group of Jesus followers gathered to pray. And again, the presence of God fell, like He did on the temple. And there's one major difference. The people didn't have to leave. 
something had changed. They could stay with the presence of God now. In fact, the presence of God filled them. And even, even crazier, when they did leave, they took it with them anywhere they went. They, they no longer had to escape from the presence of God. Because of what Jesus had done, the, the veil had been torn. People who had, who had now been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb could stand in the presence of God and, and even more miraculously could take it out into the world. One of the primary themes of the New Testament is that it was Jesus who was building the temple, not Solomon. Because Solomon's life didn't hold up to the prophecy. Things got so bad that Solomon's son split the kingdom in two and, and both kingdoms were eventually swept away. So when Jesus shows up and he builds a temple and pours his presence into that space, the big mystery is revealed. All the clues suddenly fall into place. We are that temple. And the Son of God, the Son of David, is the, is the one who fulfills the prophecy. And for us, we have access to the heart and mind of the Father because we are that temple filled with his Spirit. We don't have to leave and call Nathan and go, hey, would you talk to God for me? Because the Holy Spirit can lead us and guide us and tell us what he has planned. And we can trust that, that God can reveal his will to us and, and help us dream bigger than our own plans. We don't need Nathan to do it for us. We can go and say, God, fill my heart with, with a bigger dream. Show me what you're doing in the world and, and help me jump onto your mission instead of making a mission of my own. So the way that I'd love to respond to this message is to do just that. To dream bigger. Dream God-sized dreams. David had a big dream and, and God's answer to that big dream was, nope, not big enough. Dream bigger. We need God-sized dreams and I believe if if we all dream them together, we'd be shocked at what God can do. Let's go.